Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Charles Afeku. Charles is a lawyer by training, and he has spent nearly two decades in mineral law, advising African governments and multilateral institutions. This includes uh, his work as advisor to the director of the African Legal Support Facility of the African Development Bank in Abidjan. Previously, Charles worked as a principal legal officer in Ghana's Mineral Commission. Charles also advised the Rwanda Ministry. Charles, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I appreciate you making the time to speak with me. Thank you, Sheila. I'm delighted to join you on your podcast. So I'm happy to take your questions today and have a chat. Wonderful. So let's just start uh, at the top. So when we think of negotiations between investors and governments, uh, obviously it's triggered by the investor having invested in making a mineral discovery or a petroleum discovery for that matter. And that triggers a process of negotiations between the government and the investor over the conditions for developing that resource. Based on that, Charles, I wonder what, if you could just tell the listeners upfront what is being negotiated and what are the legal justifications for undertaking that process of negotiation? Um, yeah, thanks for the question, Sheila. Um, so this is really one form of the authorization of extractors. So one form that the authorization of extractors development takes. There are probably three main forms uh, when it comes to mining. Uh, so there's a license or concession regime. And here the law sets out fully the terms of engagement and you only receive a document or a license or arete as they call it in the Francophone uh, countries, confirming your legal rights. And then there's a contractual regime, which is what you agreed to, where the terms of engagement are wholly up for negotiation, of course, within the boundaries of relevant law. And then um, there's a hybrid regime, which includes a license and provides for negotiation of a contract as well, um, say a mineral development agreement or a mining agreement, and they are called different things in different places. So the distinctions are not so clear these days, and especially if you have the petroleum sector, which you mentioned, you'll have things like JVs, joint operational agreements, contracts of works, risk contracts, risk service contracts, technical assistance contracts, et cetera. So depending on the regulatory regime, the terms of some of the, or some of the terms of the development may be determined before a commercial find is made, either by the concession or the exploration agreement. And even by an investment treaty between the country and you know, another country. But that said, I mean, any negotiation essentially seeks to apportion value and risk and resolve conflicts or, or determine how to resolve conflicts. If you take a tenancy agreement, for instance, it negotiates value between the landlord and the tenant. Uh, extractive contracts are probably not too different. There are many more pages, but they boil down to how much value each party gets. But obviously, extractive contracts are more complicated by issues such as ownership of land, ownership of the minerals, various risks, resource market or cost risk, environmental issues, local community issues, unforeseen circumstances, sales and marketing, 
determination of value, local content, fiscal issues, such as taxes, incentives, foreign exchange, uh, loan repayment, government participation, etc. So even if you determine that the value created should be shared 50-50 by the government and the investor, how does one negotiate all of these issues to ensure the government stays? Right? In other words, if you're saddled with an environmental reclamation cost of so many millions, the 50% share of the proceeds you receive fill the 50% you originally negotiated, right? So the legal justification, the latter part of the question uh, says, is inherent in the right of ownership, which entitles one to deal in the property. So you could say that this is uh, inherent in common law, property rights. But then in most constitutions, the ownership of minerals is vested in the states and trust for the people. So there's a legal, uh, that's where the, the root of uh, negotiation uh, comes from in respect of mineral or extractive rights. Uh, and then the regulatory framework determines what issues are negotiated. Uh, I've been a bit long-winded, but I hope this provides some context in, in to what we're about to discuss. Yes, thank you. It does indeed, because you have laid out uh, several issues. Uh, the first is that uh, though there is a hierarchy of issues around which the negotiation takes place, they vary from country to country, and that there's also uh, a tendency that you have a hybrid mixture of these elements. But the, the one thing I wanted to follow through on is that the notion of value, a portion in value and, and a portion in risk. My assumption here is that each party wishes to maximize value while at the same time minimizing uh, risk. And so on the basis of the state's custodial role, what in the big scheme of things that you have laid out would be the topmost legal provisions necessary for the state to optimize value while minimizing the risk of uh, the investment? That is a difficult question, Sheila, you know, because it depends on the outcomes that are sought, right? I mean, we've, I've talked about value, but what the government considers value or the parties consider value or valuable may be different or what they, 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 they prioritize or put premium on may be different. For instance, short-term revenues versus long-term linkages. So in many cases, the custodial role of the, of the, the government party is entrenched in law, and that dictates um, how that is ensured. You know, for instance, uh, royalties. The ownership of the minerals means that they must uh, negotiate royalties. Uh, and sometimes this is according to the stipulated by the law, or it can be negotiated uh, by the government or by the parties. But I would say an outcome that ensures that the project counts for the real costs of reducing the minerals and, and the revenues, and then ensures the best economic, environmental, and social benefits to all stakeholders is optimal. I mean, you would argue that what are the elements of these things? Um, the, the, the literature or, or commentators have said various things in these areas, but I think for each country, uh, what leads to the best economic situation uh, depends on, on the government's policy or what they've decided. You know, uh, environmental and social issues are probably less uh, content, potential. Um, 
So I couldn't I couldn't point to any particular legal provisions uh, because even the most innocuous provisions can lead to huge consequences. I'll give you an example. Um, so I was involved in an arbitration in which the government of Ghana was dragged to um, an arbitration based on a boilerplate provision, right? An adequate assurances clause. That's the each of the parties undertake that it will from time to time do all such acts as may be necessary or reasonably required for the purpose of implementing or assuring the rights and obligations of the other parties. The case was that the government, by not preventing small scale, illegal small scale miners from trespassing onto or causing damage to the mining rights holders' property, had breached, breached this clause and they were claiming millions of, of dollars. Now, this is a provision that was not, I mean, too much attention was not paid to, but eventually it led to an arbitration in which the mining company was claiming millions of dollars. So all the uh, provisions are necessary, but I think they have to be looked at in the whole. You know, you give concessions somewhere, but do they lead you to the totality of the value you are seeking? Mm, that's interesting. So really what you're saying, Charles, is that value is, is neither constant nor singular nor self-evident. One is a function of what the government wants. The government must determine upfront what is valuable in the context of their own law and also their economy. But at the same time, you can't single out one thing because uh, inherent in every agreement is the potential for risk. And so even though you may on face uh, value uh, appear to have optimized in the negotiations, you may have built in a, a risk that somewhere down the road might undermine that value. So really it takes us back to that important concept of balancing uh, risks and rewards. Can you just explain to the listener what you mean by a boilerplate provision? Okay, so I mean, boilerplate provisions are standard provisions and agreements. Uh, in lawyer speak, we'll say these are precedents. So these are agreements that, these are provisions that are in many uh, contracts. Uh, they are not changed so much. You know, any agreement you take, they will be there. And in this particular case, what I said was a standard assurance uh, provision. So basically, the parties to an agreement make assurances to each other. And their standard language in expressing that assurance. You know, so it's, it does not occur to two, I mean, the parties to review that language so much because it's, 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 it's been handed down, it's been in many uh, contracts. You know. But then if you don't review it in, in relation to everything else you are negotiating, it could come back uh, to bite you, essentially is what I was trying to say. I understand. So... It's, I mean, I, I grant you that there is no generic uh, form of value and that it varies and it's very circumstantial. But we hear all the time that uh, African governments, especially in the extractives, get a raw deal. Uh, and so in the same way that we can generalize about uh, the appearance of a raw deal, are we able to generalize also on what, in terms of the elements, not necessarily the quantums or the specifics, what, what should constitute a successful extractive project negotiations outcome? Are there generic elements that if in place, we can say, if they tick these boxes, 
this is a good outcome. The sums and the values and the time frames notwithstanding. Yeah, um, Sh Sheila, I knew you'd push me on this. <laughs> I was hoping to, to, to get away with it. But, uh, and basically, my, my, what I'm saying is, is informed by my own experience, right? Because I have read all the, the, the most of the literature that focus on the areas that government should focus on. And if you go by these um, uh, writings, you know, I mean, the topical issues, I suppose, are ownership issues, rights and obligations of the parties, environmental and social issues in recent times, dispute resolution, stabilization. So, I mean, those uh, many writers have um, focused a lot of time and attention, given a lot of attention. Even in my own experience, these have taken the longest time to negotiate, you know. So to that extent, um, getting those right are critical to getting outcomes that are desirable uh, to the parties, you know. But I, I am also careful to say that, um, as I said earlier, there are provisions that if you don't pay attention to, that we probably don't pay as much attention to. That could be the cause of uh, losing the value that one so much tries to uh, protect in a fiscal provision, for instance. Hmm. So you spoke about stabilization. I mean, that reminds me of this concept of uh, stability clauses. First, what, were you, what did you mean by uh, stabilization? And what do we mean by uh, a stability clause? So um, stability clause or stability agreements or stabilization clauses are provisions in agreements or they can be standalone agreements whereby the investor, typically foreign investors, seek to mitigate adverse impacts of changes in law on the value of, uh, of the project. Uh, so, I mean, the country, the host country, uh, is not precluded from changing its laws, but the investor is exempted from application of the law. So that the because there are issues of sovereignty in, in, in discussing stabilization. So it, it doesn't mean that the country cannot make its own laws, but it just makes assurances to the, the, the investor that the laws, to the extent that they, are, they affect the investor adversely, will not be uh, applied, applied to them. Now, it is mainly done, mining projects are full of uncertainty. We just talked about risks. So the investor in putting their money in the ground uh, on a project that will probably last 30 years wants to be assured that they will um, make the uh, profits or the returns that they plan. And this is one of the tools that they use to uh, ensure that uh, actions by governments do not mitigate uh, against or, uh, that uh, expectation. So I guess like most things, you can look at it both ways. There's a level at which it is justifiable and there's a level at which uh, one might question the um, merits of uh, stability clauses. Here is what I think is uh, problematic about stability clauses, and I, I'd like to hear your views. Laws change uh, in order to serve, you know, development, political, social goals. So if the government signs an agreement with a third party and says, but you 
if I change this law in future, will be exempt from it. Surely you could argue that by doing that, they have tempered with the notion of sovereignty. Because uh, while you say a country has the right to change its laws, what's the point, Charles, in changing it if already you have exempt uh, companies X and Y from being subject to that? Isn't that fundamentally enrolled in the very concept of being uh, of, of, of uh, having sovereign rights? Yes, I definitely grant you that. But then uh, we also discussed what is negotiable in uh, the top of the discussion. So once you have the right, and I mean, I suppose sovereignty is, is one such right, it is inherent in that right to be able to deal in it, right? To the extent that you think you get value from it, right? And we also talked about value. So um, for, for countries, and, and what I think has historically happened is that many of our countries, uh, after independence, uh, went into uh, a, a phase of state ownership of uh, state-owned enterprises that were involved in, as they called it, the commanding heights of business in, in these countries, mining being one of them. Now, there were challenges down the line. And then with the World Bank intervention, there was privatization from the late 70s, 80s uh, to the 90s. And this opening up uh, required uh, that countries make gestures that would um, uh, attract, uh, that was the language, uh, companies or foreign investors in, back into those sectors. Uh, can we view some of these destinations uh, less political, politically risky and give some premium for, for that so that uh, some of these provisions can be moderated or eliminated altogether. So in a sense, I'm saying there should be a pathway to claiming your sovereignty back. Mm. So, so really what you're saying is for having moved from a resource nationalism and, and nationalization of assets to now going private, this was de facto the cost to African governments of doing business or better still, of uh, incentivizing uh, foreign investors who were, at least at the time, reluctant to put boots on the ground. I is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, there, it was. I mean, we should look at what has happened historically and definitely learn from it. What, what I think hasn't been happening is learning from it. We, we are perpetrating or perpetuating what has been the past, what, what happened and happened in the context, right? So that when you see countries still falling over backwards or competing with each other to give uh, stabilization clauses or to say my stabilization clause is better than another country's, then we, you know, it seems like the countries have lost the plots, you know, because there, you would agree with me there's been improvement since those days when uh, governments really, really take over uh, uh, companies or private investments. Besides, there are other um, avenues where countries or investors can enforce uh, these, these rights, you know. And, and the reason why stabilization clauses are probably problematic is that they grant these um, uh, rights to the companies over long periods, 30 years, and what has happened is that the, country, the countries have lost out, for instance, 
in whom we are able to implement, take advantage of uh, high prices of, of many. You know? So the, the other side of stabilization is renegotiation. So you lose out on renegotiation or sitting down at the table to talk about how to you know, manage any situation in low prices when um, uh, the opportunity presents itself. Yes, because you are right. The, the, the very fact that uh, petroleum and mineral uh, project agreements run for as much as uh, 20, 25, and 30 years means that a lot can happen that changes. And, uh, you know, you don't want to close the door on the possibility for governments to revisit these agreements as the circumstances change in order to align the agreements with value as it changes. But I, I, I mean, we, we spoke about governments having the right uh, to enact laws and to change them for that matter. The question I should ask is, how frequently do governments in the region change laws such that it, it, it might be deemed necessary to have stability clauses to guard against these frequent changes? This is a great question, Sheila. Um, so we've talked about the sovereignty of states, and that implies that countries can change. Uh, the U.S.'s policies and laws change. One may argue that the laws go through due process, and when passed, reflect the, reflect the, the will of the people. You know, so as I've said, I think the original sin that stabilization clauses were intended to absolve was that non-democratic governments will pass laws that do not pass the due process test and then could negatively impact the investors, right? But with many of our countries going through democratic processes and maturing, I mean, having some of them having parliament vibrant as uh, anywhere in the West, it's only fair that the same standards are applied. I mean, if not fully, at least a recognition that the original reason why ocean is not there anymore. What I think has happened is this. Companies, any endeavor, uh, like um, stabilization clauses, because it's the one thing that guarantees them uh, the, the return over the period, right? So clearly, they have not been willing to let go of that, you know. Um, so countries definitely will make laws, and, and they have made laws. The frequency uh, is, I mean, dependent on the country. I mean, in fact, I don't think that uh, in, in, I mean, if anything, right, in many of our democracies, people complain about the slowness of lawmaking. I recall, for instance, when in, in the boom time, there was a process to implement additional profit taxes. By the time those laws were passed, the boom time had passed. <laughs> you know? So there are even real challenges. So I won't say that the frequency or the threat that the companies are looking at actually exists. You know, what has to be done is a recognition that uh, this is a sovereign country. It will go through its process, processes. We should respect that process just as we will in in other countries and allow for renegotiation based on circumstances that change the equilibrium. And, and really that is where I think most uh, countries or negotiations are heading, a situation that 
reveals the equilibrium between the parties. You know, and they call these things economic equilibrium provisions instead of stabilization process. Or they are a form of stabilization process, but they are focused on economic equilibrium. So that if we negotiated today, that puts that at 50-50, right? Or, or whatever between us. Down the line, if there are things that change that affects the investor, right? Can we agree that this has fundamentally changed the equilibrium we had? And then agree to sit at the table to see how we bring ourselves back to that equilibrium, you know? So I, I personally favor those kinds of uh, arrangements. Yeah. This uh, economic equilibrium uh, makes sense to me too, because if we go back again to your original answer of uh, how the value is shared between the parties, uh, if you are clear about that, the, your economic equilibrium always takes you back to that, uh, you know, sharing and the, the proportion of sharing of the value. And, and, and if you maintain that, uh, especially in mining and oil and gas, as you know, with time, the deposit diminishes. Uh, yes. and, but if you maintain that equilibrium, then you are okay. Uh, because if the economics change, if the, the cost structure changes, uh, it, it might squeeze the pie, but if the tape by either party remains uh, balanced uh, exactly. around certain principles, then you, you can't really go wrong. But I want to bring you back to something which you said, which is important, of course. You, you, you've taken the concept uh, of the right of sovereign entities uh, for self, uh, of self-determination through laws and other things. But you've also made an important point, which is to say the notion that uh, changing of legislation and policy is peculiar to Africa is flawed because we see it even in Western countries that every time you have the conservatives uh, in the UK versus uh, the Labour Party, you see a swing in one direction in terms of certain policies. Uh, when you have the Democrats in the United States versus the Republicans, again, the Republicans always lower the tax on the rich, the Democrats uh, seek to raise taxes. And yet nobody complains because, to your point, these people are just representing the will of the people. And so I think you make a very important point. Why should we worry about that same due process taking place uh, in Africa, because for investors, it's just a case of enterprise uh, risk management in the same way that uh, we look at it uh, uh, anyway uh, in the world. And, and, and I do think people understanding that will, should help the public discourse uh, when it comes to uh, whether countries can or should not uh, change uh, uh, their laws. But of course, you and I are talking here assuming that there is political will in the room and that all these changes are done in order to benefit the public. But we do know, Charles, don't we, that in some jurisdictions, some of these changes are really about bipartisan rent-seeking. And, and is it not fair to say, where all we are doing is looking not at the economics of the minerals, but are looking rather at the politics of how we can get more uh, rent, that these laws are therefore, in, in those circumstances, undesirable? Yeah, um, I think you definitely should explain about sovereignty. And, 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 and really what it boils down to is that we, in one breath, see uh, 
kind of legitimacy in, in process, a process that exists outside uh, the continent and question the legitimacy of the, the, the process on the continent. Uh, whilst at the, at the end of the day, yeah, these are all uh, ways of reaching uh, what the people want. And if, I, if you indulge me a bit, uh, Brexit is one such glaring uh, example, right? Uh, it has changed uh, things for businesses in the UK beyond what they imagined, but they are dealing with it, right? It doesn't mean that the UK uh, the political risk level like uh, the rest of the continent. You know? So the, the effort that is put into evaluating the risk in these countries, because I suppose the reason why in the UK it won't affect it is that uh, even though it has changed things, there are systems that will sort of guarantee that uh, businesses uh, can still, uh, frankly, make uh, money, right? The, the, the UK, for instance, is pursuing agreements uh, all over the place that will ensure that businesses will thrive. You know, we should have or, or attribute the same to uh, developing countries and say that if they've made progress, and if I take my own country, Ghana, and probably yours, Botswana, right? I mean, the, they allowed it for things, the progress, right? But that progress has to translate into lower political risk. Or to say that this progress that has been done means that we can allow leeway in negotiations that does not unduly pen, uh, penalize uh, penalize the, the countries. Uh, I may have forgotten the, the question you asked because I was a little <laughs> passionate about this answer, but if you remind me, I can get back to it. No, but my, my, it wasn't so much a question. I was uh, seeking, uh, uh, I guess, uh, an opinion. If we are talking about changing laws for purposes of rent seeking, that is a different matter. And that, yes. that we, we, yeah, that's the point I was making that there are, in a few cases, tendencies where laws are changed when a party comes in purely to reward politically those coming into power and then the extractive companies become a logical place to go to rent seek. Yes, yes. So this has been a case where, you know, the stick is applied more than the carrot, right? Because I think the efforts we expend in negotiating stabilization and enforcing them all the way to arbitration you know, could be used to support these countries to develop the systems that ensure that by the time a law is passed, it truly represents the will of the people and it's not rent-seeking, um, as you say. Because I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the business of government is not, and, and being in negotiations where you don't have uh, all the stakeholders represented can be problematic because then, the government may be pursuing agendas that are, uh, you know, focused on the government's time in office, and typically these are five years, and ignoring long-term issues like uh, uh, local content linkages, you know, and and that's probably may mean uh, discounting some of the revenues that may be received, and ensuring that the company makes investments. Uh, that will facilitate me. Uh, so uh, you, you, I've been trying not to go there, but uh, you, you've, you've uh, <laughs> uh, made reference to a couple of issues that 
uh, compel me to ask you one last question. You, you've made reference to uh, changing political fortunes between parties. You've made uh, reference to uh, democratic uh, institutions. You've made reference to representativity across the board. And when I think of all that, it, it speaks to uh, a specific element, and that is who uh, is responsible or who's trusted to negotiate and uh, the ability of those parties to truly, uh, truly represent. And here I ask you, why is it not National Assembly members as opposed to the ruling party of the day negotiating? If we did that, would we not help uh, ensure this continuity and perhaps even reduce the risk of uh, a party rent seeking and therefore stabilize the investment environment, but even more to your point, make sure that the outcomes of the negotiations achieve the end state, which is that they benefit the lot of the people. Yeah, I mean, again, Sheila, this is a, a great question. And, uh, and this is maybe, and this is something I should have said upfront, you know, the, the nature of the law uh, is that, or at least mining law, is that it includes issues of economics and political science. So can't pretend to to be an expert on any of these, these things, but they are important, you know, because the system we have chosen ultimately determines or, or influences the outcomes that we get, right? If you take a typical system, um, these are winner-take-all systems. Uh, the government of the day has the, the the right to form a government these ministers are typically in charge of principles in negotiation but i mean they're not all bad because you know in many cases these agreements that are negotiated go to the house of representatives where the will the people the representatives of the people are expected to view the agreements and ensure that uh, they are you know, as the people uh, wish. Now, the practice, you know, may not be as uh, we wish, but in many cases, there's respect of the system. The negotiations that I've been in, whilst there are challenges, now the challenges I think have been getting the right experts. And, and of course, the institution I work for now is, is one that tries to uh, solve that problem, right? Because there may be lawyers, but are there enough lawyers that are advising on these, these things? Are, are there enough geologists? Are there enough financial experts? Are there enough uh, specialists that are advising, even though this is a, a party representative, you know, laws basically require that the person that is taking these decisions acts on the advice of these experts. You know? So there are systems, there are systems that ensure that uh, the party of the day is not doing its own will. But by the time you go through the process, uh, the, 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 what is achieved is uh, beneficial to, uh, to not just the government in terms of goodwill, but also um, to the general, to the general public. 
Yeah, so I, I, I guess what you're saying, uh, Charles, is that it's true. We cannot uh, uh, exclude politics entirely because this is the nature of government, that there is political interest. Yes. But the key is one, having the right skills around the negotiation table, but also uh, respecting institutional checks and balances. And that if we uh, import this entire ecosystem, the fact that you have a government of the day through a minister leading negotiations does not detract from everything else that constrains that minister. And so, uh, again, I guess it comes right down to respecting rule of law, uh, institutional structures. And if we do that, then uh, we should come out uh, in the right uh, place. Well, Charles, uh, thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed listening to you. Thank you, Sheila. I likewise enjoyed the conversation. And um, I will encourage others to listen to the podcasts um, like this one. I think that um, it is broken down and uh, allows people to understand these issues without the technicality. So happy to have been on the podcast. Thank you so much, Sheila.